As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to another classic replay of Unbelievable. I'm Peter Byram, standing in for Ruth Jackson this week while she's away on a very well-earned holiday break. In light of New York pastor and author Tim Keller's recent death, we wanted to revisit this interview he did with Justin Brierley from 2014. Tim talked to Justin and he answered questions submitted by listeners about his life, faith and ministry. They also discussed his then latest book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Of course, we also did a show with Tim Keller much more recently in December 2022, in which he spoke about his cancer battle and new book, Forgiveness, as well as how his own prayer and spiritual life had changed since the diagnosis. And we also spoke just last week to Lecrae, Krishkandaya and Peter Weiner about their memories and learnings from Tim Keller. So if you're interested in those as well, the links are with today's show and you can watch or listen on our website, premierunbelievable.com or via the Unbelievable podcast. For now, we go back to Tim Keller and Justin in 2014. Um, Tim, thank you very much for joining me on the programme today. I'm glad to be with you again. It's great to have you back on. Um, You uh, often come up in one way or another uh, in conversation when I'm having conversations with Christians, with atheists, with agnostics. Uh, You've sort of become positioned almost as uh, the modern day C.S. Lewis, um, if that's not too lofty a title (laughs) to to give you, Tim. But um, I'd like to start before we get into some of your writing and and some of your ministry recently. Back to the beginning. Um, When did you know that you were a Christian, Tim? Uh, hmm, college, mm-hmm. uh, my university years, I would say, uh, uh, I, I, I was raised in a Lutheran church and, um, I think I was confirmed when I was 14. I certainly would have considered myself a Christian then, um, uh, in college, I, um, I guess you might say I came to understand that, uh, I had, I, I embraced a, the idea, which is an evangelical idea that uh, simply uh, being confirmed, baptized in the church wasn't enough. I needed to have a living relationship. And so that's the place where I uh, decided that I hadn't had the, the life change that the new birth brought, that I, was, uh, uh, that I was not a Christian, and that I embraced Christ by faith. So it would have been uh, what I would say the third year, between the second and third year of my university, undergraduate. Okay. So what would you say was the defining sort of, way in which that manifested itself did did you feel a sort of a, a bolt of lightning damascus road type experience or was it just a, a settled belief that 
you 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 had made a decision for Christ? Uh, no, I wouldn't. Neither. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you want to give me any other options? Uh, uh, let me create provide. your own. Create your own. Yes. Yes. I, first of all, I was exposed to. Uh, this is nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. Uh, I uh, was taken to InterVarsity Fellowship meetings uh, on my campus. I was exposed to the, the kind of writings that uh, uh, all American InterVarsity uh, fellowships uh, filled their book tables which, with, with, which were John Stott books, some J.I. Packer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, those folks. And uh, that's what uh, I basically I, I saw the problems I was having in my own life as a, as a young man, which I don't think would be, some of which, of course, would have had distinct features because we're all unique, but many of which would be the sort of things you would think that university students would go through. Who am I? Uh, you know, what, <clears throat> how do I, uh, how do I regard myself? You know, on what, what basis do I consider myself a significant, having a significant life? What's my meaning in life? And, and I was actually going through all those things and, and feeling quite insufficient to them. And the, uh, the way in which, uh, those writers, uh, talked about sin and, uh, grace convicted me that I was a sinner and I needed grace. And so I, uh, I would say there was a, a couple months there where I probably passed from not believing to believing. So it was not exactly a, I just came to settled convictions, but it was also not a bolt exactly. But in many ways, a, a pretty conventional, uh, I would say, intervarsity conversion of the 60s and 70s. Sure. Um, and and how, how did Kathy <clears throat> figure in all this? At what point did she come on the scene? Uh well, my wife Kathy was uh, is the sister, the older sister of a uh, young woman who was part of the university fellowship at uh, my uh, at my university. My wife was not my current wife was not. By the way, I only have one wife, but I mean <laughs> Kathy, Kathy. I meant to say Kathy was not at that university, uh, but I did know her sister, interestingly enough, and pretty well. Um, and I met Kathy through uh, her sister Susan, be through the relationship I had with Susan when I went off to uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Kathy was there, too, in training, and I was there. And because we had a mutual friend and sister, I got to know her there, and that's where we uh, developed a relationship. So I didn't know Kathy in undergraduate days, and not till after I'd become a Christian. And were you, were you on the pathway for ministry at that point? Yes, I was. Uh, uh, I uh, The last two years of Minister, I, as a leader of InterVarsity, I really enjoyed ministry. I mean, I could even see it at, the, at that level, and I almost immediately decided I wanted to go into the ministry. I, I don't remember a lot about that decision, honestly, just that I was very taken with it, and I never really had much in the way of other any other vocational aspirations. Mm. Um, one of our listeners asks, um, says, I love Tim Keller, look forward to every one of his sermons when they become available on iTunes. But I'd like to know, why is he a Calvinist over an Arminian? W- w- would you say your theology was sort of settled pretty early on? And, and, and what was the process that, that kind of took place in that sense? Yeah, it was settled early on. If the, the older, like I said, the older intervarsity, um, uh, the books, and by the way, there are almost no American titles on the. Uh, <laughs> see, in the, in the late, there's a man named uh, Mark Knoll. You may know, uh, you know, a fine historian who wrote a book long ago, uh, in the 80s, 
uh, on faith and learning. I can't remember the name of it exactly. It was one of his early books. He pointed out that there was a um, that if you're a college educated evangelical, um, there were almost no uh, scholarly books or books written for college educated um, conservative evangelicals by Americans between around nine, but but. From 1930 to 1970, there was almost nothing written. Really? Goodness. Well, it's true. I wasn't until Bill Lane put out his first uh, New International Commentary. And so when you were in the 60s, you you had to read British authors. So I read (laughs) British authors. And um, uh, as you know, those authors were all kind of uh, – Packer was obviously more overt. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the Evangelical Anglicans were more uh, covert. But they were were all basically reformed and Calvinistic in their leanings. And and so I was set up for it by InterVarsity reading. Mm. And then when I went to seminary, uh, at that time, the uh, the professors of theology, Dr. Roger Nicole, who was a French-Swiss – uh, professor of theology was a marvelous teacher and a marvelous man, and he was reformed and uh, a Calvinist, and that's where I learned my theology, and that's where I became. A, but, but yeah, so I was I was set up by university and set up by the Brits as well to some extent by the sound. Oh of yes, it, which... absolutely. <laughs> and we'll right. we'll come back, of course, to your to another great uh, literary love of yours that's a Brit, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, later on in the interview, but. Um, uh, let's t- sort of fast forward a little bit to um, Manhattan, New York City. Uh, what what kind of were you thinking when you started that church? Did you have any idea that there would be thousands meeting across multiple campuses today? Uh, that's that's an easy answer. No. <laughs> what what were your expectations doing that? Survival. Yeah. Like anyone who's starting a church, you want to survive. You want to. You hope that you will be able to gather. Uh, Frankly, enough. Uh, I mean, at least in the world we have here, you want to gather enough people that their giving covers your salary and your own living expenses. Though I think I would have been open. I think uh, um, in a place like New York City, the there's such a sense of usefulness in ministry here um, and difficulty that I, you know, I, certainly bivocational uh, ministry is perfectly. Uh, not only it has a very ancient pedigree. <laughs> But it's probably the majority approach to ministry in the rest of the world. And I, but nevertheless, you want to be, you want to survive. You want enough people mm-hmm. uh, to find faith and uh, to be growing in their faith inside the congregation, just to uh, justify having the ministry and and supporting the ministry. So I, I honestly, I didn't have, uh, I had no more of a goal than that. What what sparked this tremendous growth then over the years, and and what was what kind of people did you find the church was drawing? Well, that's a good question. I suppose the the uh, the answer I've given this answer over the years, and I don't think I've got any better answer than this. <laughs> but uh, that there was a uh, there was some kind of preparation going on. Um, there was a, uh, a uh, uh, New York is a place where people are under a lot of pressure and stress. Uh, it's also uh, for the can, compared to the rest of the country, a, a rather secular place, much more. Uh, recognizable to Europeans and British people. Uh, uh, everyone, every British person comes to, to New York says, this is a recognizable society. A lot of the rest of the United States is not. And um, there was, uh, I, I, I feel that I, uh, God was helpful to me in, in finding a way to uh, communicate the gospel without compromising it, but but connected to aspirations and, and fears and uh, 
uh, baseline personal and cultural narratives. I mean, basically, the way you communicate the gospel is you find <laughs> you find out whatever the culture or a person is looking to for meaning, and you show that well, that's a good thing. You've turned it into an idol, and only in Jesus Christ will, will that hmm. that aspiration ever be fulfilled. I mean, that's basically how you preach, and it's a matter of uh, two things. One is finding that way of preaching the gospel that's that's uh, that really connects, and you can tell when you've hit that. Hmm. But then it's up to God as to how much He's going to prosper it. Yeah, because if you if you I believe you'll always bear some fruit if you figure out uh, how to connect people's heart idols and difficulties and aspirations to Christ in a way that doesn't compromise the gospel. Um, uh, but on the other hand, how effective you're going to be is absolutely up to the Holy Spirit. So whether you have a three or four converts a year or you have a thousand, it's just has nothing to do with your programming. I don't think it well, has all it, it, it. I guess, I guess I, I can totally understand that perspective, but there's no doubt, Tim, that you brought with you um and let's say you were the means by which the holy spirit was able to work um a, a, a sense of, of of an intellectual curiosity and um a, a being able to speak to people's very particular well, situations that obviously connected with a lot of people well yes but then that's right but, I, but i'm saying that is one of the ways in which you make a, a connection here mm. is pe- people who come here are um they're experts in their field they want to know that if you're telling me something about an ancient text, you're an expert in that, and or that you're reading what I'm reading. Uh-huh. So yes, all that what you what you just referred to is part of what I would consider connection. Mm. But I have definitely seen other people make that um, uncompromising and yet cultural connection uh, to a, a culture, and it not be all that. I mean, not have anything like the uh, the fruit I've seen here. Yeah, and I think that's just because I think God wanted to break something open here. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, to do other things. And that's just, uh, he has the right to do that. I mean, the only other thing I can think about that I, I bring to it is I have a very good memory, a good recall. <laughs> that helps me in communication, and it helps me in 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 uh, answering questions. But that's not, that's not a moral, moral virtue, you know. Sure. That has nothing to do with my quiet time or my prayer life or anything. Uh, uh, so God just used that, and that's great. But I, honestly, I, I, I see plenty of other people as worthy, sure. honestly, of that of kind of fruit that didn't get it, just didn't get it. And so I'm very mm. grateful for it, of course, but always remembering that. One one uh, person on Facebook um, pointed me in the direction of the story of Kirsten Powers, a former atheist um, who's told a story recently in Christianity Today, I think. Um, she works as a, a news presenter, but came to faith uh, largely through your ministry, through Redeemer and so on. Um, I don't know if you know the details of Kirsten's story yourself, um, but but um, do, do, do you want to sketch it out or, and give us an idea of why people like Kirsten, who was an atheist, very secular, very, as it were, successful in her field, are finding something to relate to, as you say, in a 2,000-year-old text, which is not why most people would be, you know, using their Sunday morning for in New York City? Well, uh, I think uh, her story is fairly, uh, well, I would... I'd say is is not common exactly, but there's a lot of other folks like that. That mm. people who who were surprised at how uh, how uh, what they would consider rightly a kind of conservative Christian uh, theology, how relevant it was to the things they were going through. But I, I I already explained. I don't think that's 
I, I actually, I think probably, and this may be something you'd like to talk about. <laughs> I think I, when I keep talking about how it's, you have to not compromise the gospel, but you have to connect it to mm. base, baseline cultural narratives or impersonal narratives. Everybody's got a story. Uh, there's protagonists, antagonists. There's a mission. Uh, everybody's got to decide, here's what, what would fix my life, or here's what's going to fix the country, or here's what's wrong with the world, and, and, and here's what will make it right. So everybody's got a story. And if you're able to inhabit the other person's story so well that they feel like you know it better, my story better than I do, and then show in a compelling way how that story is only going to find resolution in Jesus. It just can't possibly find resolution in the things you're looking to. Then that person's going to find that a compelling uh, uh, case for Christianity. Now, by the way, again, only with the help of the Holy Spirit, I've seen plenty of people say, you know, that's the most persuasive presentation i've ever heard but mm. but i am not going to go even i'm not going to touch it and see that, that i i can't i have no control over that so the number of people who actually feel the the, the, the force of it and then actually let, uh, let that draw them toward christ is uh something i have no control over you're beginning to see my calvinism yeah come no out. absolutely don't, sure, push, sure. don't push me don't push me i'll keep getting calvinistic on you i'm sorry <laughs> Well, um, you talk about the, the fact that what you're trying to present is is to show why Jesus is the ultimate answer for all our ultimate desires and longings. And in, in a place like New York, <clears throat> you've obviously got a lot of very driven people with a mm -hmm. lot of goals and ambitions and so on. Um, one person wanted to ask Ron, this was, um, he's apparently writing a research paper on Marilyn Monroe, uh, why in light of her issues and struggles through the entertainment business, she depended on drugs, alcohol, sex and psychoanalysis and so on. Um, and and so I guess turning a little bit to, to the issue of the book as well here, um, how does Jesus Christ comfort the pains and sufferings we have that other worldly things don't satisfy? What When you present this Jesus to people, um, w w what draws them to that when, in a sense, many people will be thinking, well, well, well an invisible saviour is, is sort of actually less tangible than whether I get that promotion or see my new yeah. ser series air on NBC or whatever? Well, there's a couple ways, a couple ways to uh, respond. First of all, uh, God, I have to say, if you have a kind of generic view of God, it just there's a God up in heaven, that is pretty invisible. Mm. And that isn't very tangible. I do think that the Jesus who walks through the New Testament, you know, the God-man that you see in the, in the Bible is way, way more visible. I mean, I technically... He's not literally in front of your eyes, but, um, you know, the, the narrative art of the Gospels can make that awfully, awfully mm. real, first of all. Uh, secondly, I would just say you give him the St. Augustine answer, and the St. Augustine answer is anything, or actually in Jonathan Edwards, too, uh, it, it, because this is not strictly a psychological um, this is not just a psychological argument. This is not just Jesus will make you happy. Uh, St. Augustine's answer is the real problem is that uh, our loves are disordered. That means they're out of order. And we love things that we shouldn't love first, uh, first, and things we should love third and fourth we love first, and things that we should, that, you know, like we may have God in our life. To, we may mm. believe in God, but he's not first. Yeah. He's not existentially mm. first. Mm. And and so what Augustine would say, and I you know I will say, is that anything you love more than God, you will crush it with your expectations. It won't be able to live up to them, and then it will break your heart, mm -hmm. no matter what it is. 
and I can just say, let me just show you how that's going to happen. Uh, and there's just tons of great literature about this. I mean, Christian and non-Christians talking about if, you know, if the most important thing in your life is a romantic uh, uh, partner, you will crush that person with your expectations. That person will break your heart. I mean, that's one side. But when I say it's not just psychological, Jonathan Edwards makes a great case in his book, True Virtue, on the nature of true virtue, that if you love anything more than God, it will destroy the social fabric. Mm. So if, you love, if, you're, if the most important thing in your life is your family, if that's, if that's what you're living for, then you'll have to not love other families as well as your family. So there'll, there'll tend to be a tribalism. Mm. If you if you live for your nation, if that's the most important thing, then you're going to have to uh, put your nation over other nations, and that's uh, nationalism or racism. Uh, if you live for your individual, obviously, if you're a capitalist and you're just living for your individual profit, the same thing happens. You're an individualist. Only if God is first, he says, is there even any possibility of loving uh, you know, all nations and all families and all individuals and, and creating a, uh, a basis for uh, the common good. And, mm. and and so, I mean, the arguments here, which is a basically an old foundational Augustinian argument, there I go back being an Augustinian, see, um, is uh, very, very powerful. And it works at a psychological level, but also at the intellectual and the social. I would never say the way that I'm preaching the gospel is just trying to help people see that Jesus will make them happy. I, I did want to return briefly, if we could, before the end of this part of the program, to 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 your specific theology as, as a Calvinist, um, in, in the sense that it, it, there's been this broad term, uh, the new Calvinism, which um, is a sort of resurgence of interest in, and, and uh, especially among young people, young Christians, um, a sort of reformed view of theology. What do you make of that? Why in recent years have we seen that come to the fore again with groups like the, the Gospel Coalition and the Resurgence and so on? Oh, you know, I don't know. Um, I, you know you, you, it's, anybody who look at me knows right away that whoever he is, he's not n- a new anything. <laughs> uh, not, not one of the young, restless and reformed. I, I am <laughs> not young or restless. I'm, only, I'm reformed. Uh, but I, no, I, I do know that it's interesting. I'm not sure. I, I think uh, John John Piper, uh, because he was so enormously popular with a, a broad range of young people uh, through the huge conferences he did, mm. um, yeah, the, the, uh, and and then he was and he's so overtly you know uh, Calvinistic. I know mm. that had part of it was mm. part of it at least in the states. And um, I I do think that the Acts 29. Um, uh, network, which is seems to have really uh, uh, captured the imagination of a lot of younger male mm. uh, uh, leaders. It's, it's, it seems to really attract young male uh, aspiring leaders. Is is reformed? So there, there. Uh, I would. By the way, the Gospel Coalition itself, which Don Carson and I try to convene, is more of, as you can see, more of a network of networks. Sure. And we were trying to make sure that all these new young Calvinistic networks. There's also a Southern Baptist <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, network and there's the, there's the conservative Presbyterians and there's uh, some of the uh, conservative Ref- Anglicans here sure. that are reformed that we were actually, uh, uh, I wouldn't say I, w- we would like, there is a, there is a polemical edge of course, when you're fi- when you feel like you're not only fighting the decay of the culture, but uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, uh, doctrinally, less vigilant mm. uh evangelicals i mean that's yeah 
<laughs> and so when you so that's the way. So there can be a polemical edge, and these they are young. And so when you're young and you have that polemical edge, there's a danger that you'll start fighting each other. You know, other other uh, networks that we you, you know don't really quite have our particular uh, uh, distinctive. So wh- one of the reasons we did the Gospel Coalition, it was called that, was to try to bring networks together so that they could at least see how much commonality they had and, and really learn to get along. Mm. And I think that has worked. But on the other hand, I, I would say there's plenty of... Uh, but there's also young non-Calvinists that sure. have a polemical edge. Yeah. And I mean, almost every single kind of movement that says this is what evangelical needs that's got people in their 20s or 30s and it usually has a more polemical edge than it should be and that's that's but i was there too and i understand that yeah absolutely i mean i mean given sort of that there has been a, a trend in other directions as well um so mm-hmm. i've had i've had nt Wright on the show a couple of times and he's mm-hmm. talked about you know the new new perspective on paul and and and, and so that that has obviously been a little bit concerning to some who are in the reform movement mm-hmm. um what do you make of that particular trajectory in theology um a lot of people embracing that moving away from that sort of reformed theology to some to saying well we've got to understand what paul meant by justification in his context and, and have we borrowed a sort of medieval or or re, you know reformation time legalistic code in place of it and so on do, do you have yeah. any thoughts on that oh of course uh, i'm not uh yeah, I don't buy that. The, the 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 thumbnail narrative you just gave, mm. which this isn't, we're not talking about Tom Wright himself no. or any one person here. That thumbnail narrative that the reformers, the Lutheran Calvin, you know, bought into an individualistic understanding of justification. We've got to uh, uh, we've we got to get a whole more holistic one. Uh, we Paul probably wasn't thinking so individualistically. I, I I just think the narrative is overdone. Honestly, I yeah. Uh, so I, in that sense, I'm not I'm not a uh, I haven't bought into it. But like most, I think people, I've learned from it. Mm. I've learned a lot from it. I just reread uh, Calvin Institutes. It seemed like it was time for me to do that uh, <laughs> last year, uh, and uh, really, really let it saw and also saw how he works through Romans and saw how he works through. Paul and I think he's basically still right. I know that I wouldn't say that he really took us in a bad, a bad direction. So I, and I actually think I hate to say this, but I really think that it's going to be very hard to, uh, you know, a hundred years from now, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine that most of the Christian world is going to say, yeah, Lutheran Calvin, they're really wrong on justification. Sure. I mean that what they what they said has such staying power and such power that it's very hard for me to believe we're really going to just turn over on that. But I do think the new perspective helps us understand uh, Paul in his context in ways that I didn't understand before. So I'm mildly appreciative, but I don't buy, I don't buy the thumbnail narrative at all. Sure. Yeah. Well, just just was interested to get your thoughts on that. But um, we're, we're, we're running out of time in this first section of the program. My guest today is Tim Keller. Uh, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York, popular author and speaker. And in the next section, we're going to be talking about his new book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. This is, of course, uh, an Easter edition of the show. And we're going to be particularly tying that into the suffering of Christ on the cross and what that says to our human condition today. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. 
and some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask NT Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Uh, we'll be bringing some more of your questions as well as we continue today's edition of Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. Come back in a moment's time. What 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 do you make of the state of the UK church? Um, as someone who comes in every so often and obviously is quite influential, I think, here in the UK among certain church leaders, do, do you have cause for hope? Oh, sure. But, I mean, it's as fragmented as every other country's <laughs> uh, uh, Christian world. It, it, I don't think it's worse or better, actually. Uh, it has its, but it has its own unique features. And, what, by the way, one of the, it's true that one of the advantages of bringing a British speaker over here or bringing an American speaker over there is that the tribalism is broken down a little bit because whoever the, a foreign speaker doesn't completely fit in any one tribe. Yes. Uh, usually it, it, it usually is able to draw a few people together that otherwise might just say, oh, that, I know who that speaker is. We don't go to their conferences. <laughs> so I, I have found that, that uh, one of the advantages of me coming over, I'm still obviously, uh, uh, you know, obviously people can locate me on the theological spectrum, sure. but it's just a little easier. It's the same way with bringing a British speaker over to America is you, you'd you draw a larger crowd generally, yeah. or a broader crowd. So broader I've, crowd. I've noticed that actually I can I can sometimes be of use to uh, good ministries in in the UK because I can uh, help them draw some people out to get something done. And so I've enjoyed doing that over yeah. the years. Does does in a sense what you can you know you've termed the tribalization almost um, does that concern you? Because obviously we all have our theological distinctives, but but have have we gone too far in kind of requiring that everyone fits a certain category oh of course but but you know it's uh from what i can tell i i really don't see a country anywhere where i see oh if they, they've broken through that tribalism i don't see it mm. so and actually w- one of the things that's interesting about the uk is because uh it's i mean forgive me it's a smaller country uh, and this church is actually uh, you know, uh, the church is smaller actually than, than the American churches. Uh, there are sometimes it feels a little bit more uh, uh, combative over there mm. in the in the British because because you're smaller you kind of know each other better. See over <laughs> over here over here the tribes are so big that people live yeah. almost oblivious to the existence of other tribes. I, I know exactly what you're saying there, Tim, and and I think I think it, there's a lot of truth to that. And and I've sometimes, yeah. but I think it can work in the other direction that um, we're small enough that we have to get on a bit more. We can't necessarily survive in our own um, tribal groups so much. Yes, if you like. And, and very often you're actually related to each other. No, yeah, exactly. what's it, it, because you are a smaller place, you actually have either gone to school together or you've got family members. 
And uh, again, over here, the tribes are so big that people are almost, they're just islands and they're yeah, oblivious to each so. other. But it's not, it's no better here and it's no worse there. <laughs> Let's talk about the uh, the new book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Very simple question to start out. And, and David Eves, one of our listeners, asks it. Why this book? What prompted Tim to write a book on suffering and pain in particular? Well, there's two kinds of people over the years. Uh, uh, as the church got bigger at Re- in, here at Redeemer, uh, it was it was unfortunate as the church got bigger that I wasn't just able to see pastorally every single person that said, "Can I talk to you?" I had to start uh, I had to start referring other people to uh, many people to other pastors. I had to you know we want to give everyone pastoral care, but the two people that I've always in a sense been drawn to or felt that I wanted to speak to or that I was good at speaking to were skeptics and sufferers, people who are really suffering and people who are very skeptical about the faith. And I thought, I, I realized I could have one book <laughs> that actually addressed both, because the first half of the book is really dealing with the question of how can God allow such evil and suffering? Yeah. And the second half of the book is on how do I deal with evil and suffering in my own life? And that was that's why it's so long. It's the longest except for Center Church, which is a textbook. It's really the longest book, and I hope it's the longest book I ever write. But <laughs> it, it's, it really, it's really at least two books in one mm. because of that. It's first for skeptics, then for sufferers. And so in addressing both of those groups, obviously they often come as one package. Um, yes, and, that's exactly right. <laughs> um, you've obviously, you've, uh, what I like about this is that you've included a lot of stories as well throughout. And are these stories mm-hmm. of people who have both been at the church or people you know? Um, what, what was mm-hmm. the value in including those types of accounts? Well, it was intuitive. It felt like um, that the book, no matter how hard I tried to be non-academic and, and pastoral, uh, I still knew that I it, it was still relatively abstract. So what we did was we went out and found uh, real-life stories of people who had taken the principles, as it were, and mm. worked them through personally. Actually, uh, th- th- it was very it's been very successful in that people who read the book just go they love the stories and one of the problems is my wife curated them uh, worked quite hard on them uh, went out and found them got them uh, you know edited them worked with people a great deal and it turned out that because the book got longer than we thought we, I didn't actually quite have enough stories I wanted a story for absolutely every chapter sure and uh, I think we fell short on that. But anyway, that's why we did it. Mm. In your own personal journey as well, um, w- would you say that you've been through any dark nights of the soul in, in your life where, where this has been a, an emotional issue for you as opposed yes. to just an, an, an intellectual one? Yes. Um, I mentioned, I think, I try to mention the book without without calling too much attention to it. Uh, uh Though I would still say this is nothing compared to what many people face. But my wife, uh, Kathy, has Crohn's disease and uh, is doing somewhat better right now, though she's lost a rather large parts of her body. I mean, her colon and things like that are taken out. Uh, Crohn's disease, unlike cancer, is not something that you get and take. It's a, it's a problem with the entire body, so it could come back anywhere, anytime. But... Um, uh, at the worst spots where she was at least four or five years extraordinarily sick and just uh, really we didn't know whether she was going to live at certain points. But it was so draining on me that I actually thought about leaving the ministry. But I, the, the reason it was a dark night was I, my wife's my best friend. Uh, I've, we've always decided we weren't going to go 
talking about intimate things with to other people uh, without talking to each other. So I didn't feel that I could talk to her mm-hmm. about uh, thinking about leaving the ministry because I felt like she was too sick for me to really maintain a parish ministry. Um, and on the other hand, I, th- cause I couldn't tell her because I thought she would just it, obviously it would it would depress her. So mm-hmm. just just it would just destroy her. Oh my, I'm doing this to you. But I also didn't feel quite free to go talking to other people about it for that very reason that sure. I could leave her out of the loop. And um, so I had a horrible year. Mm. Uh, that was my side. And I actually do realize that when you're caring for suffering people, um, uh, people who are dying of cancer, that sort of thing, I, I, I found out through my experience that the, this, the caregivers of the sufferers are suffering. It's secondhand suffering. It's sort of like secondhand smoke. Mm. But it's peculiar. It's distinctive. People almost always ignore them. They, they, nobody sees it as suffering. And yet they're going through something that's just awful. And um, and yet, generally, nobody is helping them because they're the supporters, supposedly, and they're also healthy. So, or, or they're not they're not actually having the trouble, but yes, they are. If you're if you're linked, so yeah, going through stuff like that, and also being a pastor, walking through a lot of, of course, issues, with a lot yeah. of people, and, and you must see that, a great yeah. deal of of pain and tragedy just in the course of the pastoral sure. aspect of your work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, pastors and policemen see see yeah. the dirty something. Yeah, mm. and and. When it comes to the emotional issue of suffering, will a theodicy, a, a way of looking at whether there is a purpose in pain and suffering and so on from, from God's perspective, does, does that help at that point? Or, 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 or what is your advice to someone who is actually going through suffering at this moment? Well, what I try to say in the book is uh, when you're really going through it and you, you start to ask the, the, the philosophical why question, that is actually not the time to read a book on by some philosopher on yeah evil it just isn't if you think it is you may feel that way it really isn't you just don't have the energy for it mm. uh and and i always say to, to to caregivers that if people start to try to get you into if the sufferers try to get you into a philosophical discussion it's really best uh not to encourage it I and mean, it doesn't mean you turn them away exactly but you just uh, you know don't 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 take the bait I really don't think that uh, generally the, the question is much more, how do I get through this? Not mm. how do I understand this? I, I usually and therefore. But what I did in the book was I actually start the book by saying, if you're into suffering, I would suggest that you skip the first part. If you don't mind me asking another slightly personal question, Tim, um, I know that you also lost your mother and father recently, more or less within a year of each right. other. And that was about the time the book was coming out. So what? what what was it like to, as it were, be writing and, and releasing a book on, on suffering and obviously going through that loss and grieving yourself? Well, my parents both died, yes, last calendar year in 2013. And uh, uh, they live in Florida and uh, lived in Florida. And my sister lived down there. And my sister was the main caregiver. And um, I'll just put it this way. Uh, because they were almost 90, uh, they lived long lives. They were professing Christians. Uh, I don't think either my sister or I would complain mm-hmm. uh, and feel like we went through great suffering to, to lose our parents. I mean, obviously, there's ter- terrific grief and your life flashes before your eyes and there's a sense of your own mortality and all that that everyone who's lost a parent knows. But it was, I would say, the kind of garden variety suffering yeah. that most most people do when they lose a parent. However, to watch them actually suffer, because they did suffer quite a bit at the end, uh, physically and emotionally, that was tough. And it, yes, uh, as the 
as the book was coming out, I, uh, yeah, it was a background for the book, but it made me glad I wrote it. That's all. Because I, it, it is just to- completely inevitable. Nobody, it really is true that everybody, it's a big part of what it means to live your life now is how do you yeah. deal with evil and suffering? No, no one is immune. And, and, not at all and in a sense it's those stories that you've included in the book that that bring that across most of all you know they are well perhaps not quite on the level of of job's suffering but they they are stories in that ilk you know of my goodness that happened then that happened and then that happened and and Mm -hmm. and so when the person reads that or goes through that in a nutshell and i know it's hard to distill what is a, a lot of book into into a soundbite but what 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 do you say to the person when they come to being able to ask the the intellectual question of of why did God allow that to happen? The basic answer, my pastoral answer, and it, it's more pastoral because they're going through it. I would say that because the um, uh, because the Bible gives us a um, a God who suffers. I mean, you might say that there are religions. Who a lot, who in which uh, there's incarnation? No, I wouldn't grant that. I mean, obviously the Hindu gods and some of the stories of the Greek gods. Some people would say, well, there are religions in which uh, the deity becomes human, but there isn't anything like Christianity, where it says deity actually experienced, you know, in his person uh, suffering. Mm. And I so I say, look, the Bible says that God came down and took part in suffering and evil, experienced it himself, so that someday he could come back and end evil without ending us. He, he came and did this so he could he died for our sins, so someday he could end evil without ending us too. And I said, now what that means is we still don't know what the reason for your suffering is. We don't know in God's wisdom or purpose why he's allowing it. But we do know what the reason isn't. It's not that he doesn't love you. It's not that he doesn't care or that he's remote. And actually, that's the half of the reason for suffering that we need, which is I need to know that it's really not that he just is kind of away on a trip or just missing out or just not caring. So the the cross shows that he does and that he cares so much and he actually hates evil and suffering so much that he would come down and, and participate in it so that he can bring it to a conclusion someday. That still doesn't tell me the reason for my particular suffering. But then I might, I might actually say the cross still helps out a little bit. I said the Bible is an entire book that helps you understand why God allowed evil and suffering to happen to Jesus. Mm. The reason that nobody, and I say, you know, think about the people who are around Jesus at the cross, who were his friends, and because they didn't have the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament, <laughs> because they didn't know the reason, they might have gone home that, that night saying, well, I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. And so if, if, you, if you realize that those folks might have lost their faith, actually at the moment looking at the greatest action of God's wise, redeeming love in the history of the world, then you realize that, that, that there's a book for you, too. We, mm-hmm. There is some explanation. You just don't have it. We've got the book on Jesus' suffering. We don't have the book on your suffering. But we do know, because Jesus suffered, that God cares about you. And that's the answer. And in that sense, did God in any way intend for suffering to be a part of our experience? Um, How do you kind of deal with those kind of whole issues of 
of whether this is something ordained by God or something yeah. God God allows, um, and His greater purposes are revealed through it. Uh, how, how would you sort of parse that out, Tim? Well, you know, here's where my uh, when I was in seminary, uh, Doctor Nicole, my uh, professor of theology, had everybody read the last chapter in uh, Herman Bavinck's uh, Dogmatics on the Doctrine of God. And there's an interesting chapter in there that, when I say this to some of your listeners, they're going to say, what in the world? It's a chapter uh, on the difference between superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. <laughs> and su- superlapsarianism is the, was the argument that God did uh, decide to say, I'm going to create a world in which there's evil because that'll glorify me. And infralapsarianism uh, was the argument that says, well, the, God actually invented a world uh, not with evil and suffering in it, but when evil and suffering occurred because of uh, the fall, he uh, uh, also ordained to choose some people out of it, and not, but not save everybody, mm. because uh, that would glorify him. So there's this argument back and forth, and Bavink makes a good case that you, he's, it's a brilliant case where he says, he says, the Bible doesn't really let us choose between these. Uh, the Bible actually says, you mustn't come down too hard in one direction. Because if you really say God didn't ordain evil, he couldn't help it, it was not his design, um, then you really don't have a God. You know, you've got something else in charge of the universe, and we don't know what that is. If, on the other hand, you say, yes, God just ordained evil in order to, in fact, that was his plan from the beginning, to create evil so that, you know, it would glorify him. He says, then you, it doesn't fit in with a lot of what the Bible says about God's purposes and design and heart and love and so forth. So he says, sorry, I don't know. Or, or he says they're both right and they're yeah. both wrong. And you, and you just you stick with what the Bible says. And are you happy in that sense to have loose ends yourself well, on that you know, I'm, Yeah, I, listen, I'm because, because I do see, look, think about this. If evil had not happened, there would be no such thing as courage. There would be no such thing as sacrifice. Uh, I mean, there, there is no doubt in my mind that God allowed evil because the eventual glory will be greater than if the evil hadn't happened. So I absolutely do. I mean, I'm a Calvinistic enough mm-hmm. to say if uh, I really understand that. It's almost as if that uh, whatever God's purposes are, he, I know that the evil will only make the eventual glory even greater, and therefore evil will be absolutely defeated. Because if the thing... Evil wants to hurt our glory and hurt God and hurt us and hurt our joy. And if the evil is somehow used in the end to only make our joy greater, then that's the absolute and complete defeat of evil. Mm. It frustrates it in every way. And see, I'm enough of a Calvinist to, to, to believe that, that God is, going to, is using evil like that. And there's a sense in which he ordains evil. And there is another sense in which it's, I would say, it's here, put it this way. I think what I got from Bavink is it's asymmetrical ordination. He does not ordain good the way he ordains evil. They're not identical. There's some, there is some permissiveness in the way he ordains evil that is not identical to the way he ordains good, but I would never say he just allows evil. See, and that's, that's, that's what I remember this 40 years ago, pretty much, I read this in, in Bavink, and I haven't read it probably in at least 20 years. But that's what I got from it. Yeah. A kind of asymmetric. Yeah. It, it's so a- I'm definitely in this in this in this middle ground here. Sure. But I'm still 
by the way, infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism are both basically Calvinist positions. So I yeah, mean, I'm, sure. I'm they're, only in the middle between the two. They're, they're variations on a theme, aren't they? W- one question that's come in, and I think is actually very relevant, is obviously um, the way that people from other sort of backgrounds in Christianity can can approach this, and maybe in a, in a rather unhelpful way. Um, someone asks here, uh, if I can just find the the correct run, uh, David Gowers asks, how big a, a threat is the uh, word, faith, name it and claim it movement to our understanding of how we should deal biblically and practically with the issue of pain and suffering. Uh, and he mm. points out that the doctrine of, for instance, positive confession, prese- yeah. uh, does that prevent believers from dealing with the, the real issue of pain and suffering? So obviously there are there are some you know yeah. versions of Christianity which, which basically say God wants you to be happy, healthy and wealthy and there's a way to get that. And so um, what, what do you say to that kind of an approach? I think he's I, I think uh, having after I say it's true that God has good purposes for us. And there are plenty of scriptures that talk about that. And we must not imagine a God who enjoys uh, seeing us have evil and suffering. So that's the problem with just saying he ordains evil the same way he ordains good. Mm. He can't possibly, I mean, there's just too many places where he says, why would, you know, in Ezekiel where he says, I don't like, I don't desire the death of a sinner. I mean, there's obviously plenty of places where it says God judges sinners mm. and therefore he obviously must. And, and the, and the judgment on sin is death. And yet there's Ezekiel 18. I don't desire, I don't enjoy the death of a sinner. So, so, so he does want good for us, but the name it and claim it, I have certainly seen in my own life the way people understand, many people understand that teaching, because I've seen this in people I've pastored, is that, that God, uh, that I'm just not believing hard enough or else God, you know, things would be going well in my life. Mm. Because God certainly doesn't want anything bad. And if I believed in him enough, everything would be fine. I, I Maybe the name it and claim it or Maybe the teachers don't want people to see hear it that way, but they are hearing it that way, and therefore it is a problem. Yeah, and and for you, is that just a sort of, I don't know, a, a false interpretation of? I mean, there are, there are favorite passages of scripture, obviously, that that movement uses. But but would you say that's just uh, taking something out of context? Um, did when when they say that you you kind of almost have a a right, you know, is the way it's something yeah. to to a certain level of health and wealth and, and happiness if you, you know, take the, yeah. the, the five steps or whatever. I agree. I think it's taken out of context of the whole entire canon. Um, though, actually, listen, if you even go to Proverbs, uh, I remember years ago, I figured this out, that in the first, it seems like the first four or five chapters after chapter 10, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 of Proverbs, seems to be constantly saying, if you do this, everything will go well. If you if you love people, people will love you. If you work hard, you'll always be prosperous. Mm-hmm. And they seem to be categorical statements. Now, they're not. They're proverbs. And a proverb is not a promise. It's a way of saying this is how life generally goes. If you do this, these things will happen. But then starting around verse 16, chapter 16, stuff comes in where it'll say things like um, the poor work hard, but oppression takes it away. Mm. See, now, it almost seems like a contradiction to, to the, I would say, the naive reader of Scripture. Because in chapter 10 it said, if you work hard, you will never go begging. 
you'll always be prosperous. That's what it says. But then in chapter 16, it says, the poor work hard, but oppressors take it away. Well, now, which is it? And the answer is, you haven't learned how to read. Um, you, you do have to take the whole Bible in context, and especially Proverbs. You have to be careful that it's not just talking about how... I, I think the answer there is, in general, God made the world so that if you live in certain ways, and you pray, and you love people, and you work hard, that generally speaking, that means your life goes better. But the world is broken, and because it's broken, those things don't always pay off. Mm. And, and you have to expect, expect that, because there is suffering and evil as part of the curse of the fall. And so I think you take it, if you take certain verses, like you said, out of context, then you run into that problem. We're going to take another quick break, Tim, and then we'll just be finishing up this discussion. You're listening to Unbelievable this Saturday afternoon. I'm Justin Briley. My guest is Tim Keller. He's a well-known author, speaker, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and uh, his latest book is Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Joins me for today's special Easter program. So join us again in just a moment's time. Well, finishing up today's discussion, it's really a conversation with uh, Tim Keller on the program. Um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering is his latest book. And as, as it's Easter, Tim, coming back to God on the cross, God with us in our pain and suffering. Um, has your experience been that that, that ultimately beyond a, an intellectual argument, and there are good arguments out there, but that that, that is the fundamental thing that, that Christians cling to when they do come to to those times of pain and suffering in their own life? Well, it's certainly one of them. Um, it is both an intellectual and a very personal, even visceral uh, truth. Because, yes, the uh, doctrine of the, uh, the classic doctrine of Christ is the hypostatic union, that uh, in one person, in Jesus Christ, uh, the divine and human natures were united. So two natures in one person. And therefore, a deity is on the cross, uh, I think, I believe it or not, there's some place where Albert Camus actually says that deity uh, let go of its prerogatives and was willing to, and privileges, and went to the cross and to, to suffer. And uh, that means that both intellectually, very rationally, that means God did come and suffer, but personally it means he's with us. And I just, it means he really is God with us. Emmanuel is usually what we talk about at Easter. Uh, he's human, so he's with us. Mm. But boy, when on the cross, there's God with us. I mean, if he hadn't suffered, he really wasn't with us. So I think that that's, uh, yes, very powerful. It is. Thank you very much for, for being with us on the program today, Tim, and all the best for your ministry. Obviously, we'll make sure there's links for anyone who wants to follow up and, and look at the book and so on. <laughs> um, are you going to be uh, coming back to the UK at any point next year? Have you got anything in the diary, or, or is that still still yet to be decided? Uh, the, uh, when you say next year, yes, in 2015, we're I'm talking to some various people about coming and speaking, perhaps in the middle of the year, but not not this calendar year, I'm afraid. Oh well, we'll we'll look forward to that next time anyway. But in the meantime, if you want to catch Tim just by podcast, you can of course find the Redeemer sermons online. Uh, you can find uh, lots of articles and so on as well uh, from Tim and and others at the Gospel Coalition and of course at the Redeemer Presbyterian Church website. Um, Tim, thanks for joining me on the program today. All the very best. Uh, send my best wishes to Kathy, and uh, and I, I do hope you have a a good Easter. Thank you so much. God bless you. That was Tim Keller in conversation with Justin Briley from Easter 2014. Tim lost his battle with cancer on May 19th of this year, 2023. 
If you want to hear or watch the most recent discussion from December 2022, in which Tim joined Ruth and Justin to take questions from a live online audience and spoke about his cancer, prayer life and his book about forgiveness, and if you want to catch last week's show where Lecrae, Krishkandaya and Peter Weiner joined Ruth Jackson to share their memories and reflections about Tim Keller, then the links are with today's show and you can also find them on premierunbelievable.com or through the Unbelievable podcast. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time for another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. Unbelievable.